Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Last Wednesday we began something that's been in my heart for several, for a while now. And uh, it was appropriate, especially because of just some disturbing things that I've heard from people. Um, but we, because we had uh, a different weather last Wednesday, uh, and uh, therefore a lot of you may not have been able to be here, I'm going to go back and spend a little more time in review because I really believe this is very, very important to us. And uh, um, I just, I hear Christians getting scared. I hear Christians, um, as I shared a little bit on Sunday and I, I shared last Wednesday, we had children, of course we have a, an elementary school here, and we had, I had a number of reports, so it wasn't just one isolated one, of children scared that the world was coming to an end. Well, where did they hear that? They had to hear that at home somewhere, which means that's our mentality. And, and you've got to understand, yes, we live in perilous times. The Bible says we will. Why are we shocked? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. That's trouble. Why are we shocked that there's tribulation? But he goes on to say, fear not. He doesn't say, look, in this world there are going to be difficult times. Boy, you better panic because I'm sure afraid. You know, nothing catches God by surprise. Elections, storms, none of it catches Him by surprise. And He's not, you know, sitting on the edge of the throne up there, you know, shaking, trying to figure out what we got to do. My goodness, we got to get the 24 elders together and, you know, we got to start praying. I don't know what to do. No, there's nothing that's caught God by surprise. Therefore, we need to get our eyes on Him who has the answers. And off of CNN... And Fox News, and MSNBC, and, you know, your favorite internet source of news. I'm not saying you can't be up to date on the news, but don't, they're not your source of what's going to happen. They tell you what has happened. This tells you what's going to happen. So we need to get our eyes on what's going to happen and get our eyes on the one who knows what's going to happen and knows what we need to do and not spend quite so much time with our eyes and our ears glued to people that are telling us things that have happened. And by the way, they have to keep telling us over and over and over and over and over and over again because it dawned on me, these are 24-hour news channels, but there's not 24 hours of news. You know what news is? News are things that are new. So I'm off on a little hobby horse here tonight. So when they keep telling it to you over and over again, the first time it was news. The second time, the third time, the fourth time, the 20th time, it's no longer news. They're filling in space because they don't know what else to tell you. But here's the problem. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing. That means fear also comes. By hearing. Because fear and faith, faith the same. is the substance of things not seen. Fear is the substance of things not seen. The difference is faith is things God has said that we haven't seen yet. Fear are things the devil has said we haven't seen yet. 
Both of them are in the future, and whichever you spend your time listening to is what you're going to have your confidence in. And we're living in a time when the Bible says that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. That's God's plan, and that's not bad news. That's good news, because we're going to find out what the solid foundations are in our life and what the foundations we build on that are not solid so we can build on the solid foundations. Because the church is here to overcome. The church is here to be a light in the darkness. The church is here to be a voice in the noise, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, all the clatter. The church is here to be an oasis in the difficult times. That's why he's left us here. Not to survive, but to overcome. The book of Revelation has, contains promises to he who overcomes. Not he who survives, he who overcomes. That tells me there's going to be stuff we have to overcome, but we're well able to. So it's a trick of the enemy to get afraid and discouraged by the news that's going on because that's not the news we base our hope on. That's not the news we base our life on. This is the news we base our life on. That news changes. This news never changes. All right? So what's been God put in my heart a while ago is to talk... Well, do you find 1 Corinthians 13? All right. Now, most of the time when I, someone tells you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, if you've been around very long, you're, first of all, you're going to think, well, that's the love chapter. But it's, it, yeah, it contains love. It talks about love. But that's not what it's really about. It's really talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Because it's sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14, which are all about the... Chapter 12 is about the misuse of the gifts of the Spirit. Well, so is chapter 14. It's about the misuse of two or three of them. <clears throat> and chapter 13 is part of Paul correcting them. And what chapter 13 is talking about is the gift... If, if, you, if you operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but your heart is not motivated by love, then you miss it. You may look very spiritual. You may have prophecies, prophesy coming out of every seat, every person. You may have miracles being performed. You may have all kinds of spectacular things happening. But if it's not all motivated by love in God's eyes, it counts as zero, zilch. So it's part of the correction. And then he comes to the end of this chapter and he says in verse 13, Now, now abides faith. He said, these gifts are going to pass away. When are they going to pass away? When we get into eternity, when we see Him face to face. We're not going to need these gifts anymore because they're a temporary substitute because we can't see Him and what He's like. So when, we, well, when we're in His presence, we don't need the substitutes because we got Him. But then He goes on to say in verse 13, but there are going to be some things of these that do survive, and that's what verse 13 is about. Now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So we hear a lot about love, and this church is named Faith Christian Center, so we hear a lot about faith. But there's one of these three things we don't hear much about that's just as important, and that's hope. So we're, we're beginning to look at hope and what the Bible means about hope. And we're going to spend tonight and probably not next week because next week is the night before Thanksgiving and what we usually do is we're going to be doing testimonies. It's your chance to preach. 
So we're going to give you a chance to share what God's done in your life, something to give thankful, thanks for. But anyway, but then what we'll resume after that, we're going to go finish this. We're going to look at why it's important to have an under, not only an understanding of hope, but why it's important to have hope. Then we're going to look at what hope is, because it's not what most people think it is. And then we're going to look at how to get it. And so those are, that's going to be the basis of our study. So we're, last week we began, and we're going to pick up again this week, with why it's so important, why hope is so important. And although the greatest of these is love, hope is just as important as faith, and therefore also as love. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look at the first thing. We looked at it a little bit last week, but we'll review it, because again, I know many of you weren't able to be here, and it won't hurt those of you that were here again, and we kind of got off on some tangents which we may get off on again. You never know. Hebrews chapter 6. And we'll start in verse 17. Now what he's talking about here, again, he's correcting Hebrew believers. And he's talking about here about what we can be, what we, what we can be confident in. And we'll go back and look at some of this when we look at one of the other subjects. But he's talking about that, that we, can trust, we can trust God because God has made an oath to us. God has made an oath to us. And then he says in verse, verse 17, Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, that includes us, the immutability, that's just a fancy word that means unchangeability, the unchangeability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So what we looked at before is he's talking about God's made a promise to us and that and God backed it up with an oath. Now elsewhere it says, you know, man makes an oath. Why, why, do, why do we make an oath? Because we can't trust our basic everyday word. You know, one of my pet peeves, and I understand that it's kind of a habit, as people come to me and say, well, well, to tell you the truth, Pastor, now that immediately raises a question to me. If you're telling me the truth this time, what about the last time when you didn't tell me you were telling me the truth? Does that mean that you've got to tell me when you're telling me the truth because I don't know when you're telling It begins to raise a question. Now, I understand there were times Jesus said, verily I say unto you, in other words, truly I say unto you, and he was emphasizing it. I understand that. But really the point is here that the reason in court that we have to, we have to, we have to give an oath that we're going to tell the truth is because we don't trust that people tell the truth if they don't give an oath. And that's why Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that don't give an oath. Because your yes should be yes, and your no, in other words, you ought to mean what you say, whether you give an oath or not. So God doesn't give a, need to give an oath because he can't lie. But because of our weakness, we need something extra to believe he means it, so he gave an oath on top of the fact that he can't lie. That's what this means. All right. In which it is impossible for God to lie, and we went off last week, and what that means that it is impossible for God to lie. It's not that he doesn't lie, he can't lie. That means every word in here has to be the truth because God cannot lie. We might have strong 
consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before it. Oh, there's so much in those words. Notice he's talking, he's talking to these Hebrew believers and what was going on in their lives at the time is a great persecution had come into the church in the beginning. Satan's device, once the church was birthed, was try to stop it with pressure and persecution. That's why many of you are facing what you're facing right now. Whether it's persecution from people, it's pressure from the enemy because he's trying to get you to quit. I have the privilege of hearing a lot of testimonies of things that are going wrong in lots of people's lives. And it's amazing the similarity. The details may be different. And what you may be living with and going through right now may be all that you think you can handle. And it may, it may be what it feels to you. But you need to know that there are many people who are going through things. The details may be different, but the source of them is the same and the goal of them the same. It's pressure from the enemy to get you to quit. And all you need to do is resolve, I'm not going to quit. I don't know about you, I've come too far to quit. I've come through too many tests, too many trials. I, I had too many opportunities 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 2 years ago, 1 year ago to quit, and I didn't. Why would I quit now? That's like having won the marathon, run the marathon and come up and the finish line is in sight and you say, I can't make it, so I'm going to stop. But the enemy is persistent. And so he will put pressure on you. Understand that. That's what was going on with these Jewish believers 2,000 years ago. He doesn't have anything new. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation that's come against you that's not common to man. He has nothing new. And so he was bringing pressure. So what he did was he tried to stop the church by bringing pressure against them from the outside. And it not only didn't work, what it did is it scattered the people, the believers. So what it in effect did is it scattered the gospel. And now these Jewish believers that had been centered in Jerusalem and in the center part of Palestine, were, these were now scattered into Asia Minor. They're now separated from the mother church. They're separated from so many other believers. And they were, be, they were being pressured into compromising what they believed. And so this is what he's talking about to them. He said... That through God we might have strong consolation or comfort is what that word means. Who have fled for refuge. That means there's something they're fleeing from. And what they're looking for is refuge means a break. Refuge means a protection. Refuge means something that's going to give me protection and safety. So they fled from this pressure for some kind of refuge. And notice what they've done to lay hold of the hope. So what they fled to, what God has provided for them to protect them is hope. We're going to learn when we get to what hope is. See, our concept of hope is, you know, well, it's just come some kind of flimsy, you know, 
thing that might happen that's good in the future. But that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident, positive assurance. And we're going to develop that even more. But it's not, well, I hope so. But see, you and I hear that word, and so we're looking at how can hope be a refuge? Because we don't understand what the Bible means by hope. What I want you to see tonight is it must be something that provides a refuge, something that provides a break, something that provides a breather, something that provides protection, something that provides a refuge from the pressure and from the attacks of the enemy. Hope is a refuge, a protection. And the second thing we see is it's set before us, not behind us, not where we are. So hope is something in the future. But you say, well, how can something in the future be a refuge to me now? We need to have a hope in the future. That's where the refuge is. We'll talk more about that. But this is what I want you to see, verse 19. This hope, this refuge, this protection, we have as an anchor of the soul. We talked last time, what does an anchor do? An anchor keeps you from drifting away. When a boat comes into harbor or comes into a to stop, to rest for the evening, it'll find a place. We have the, the, the place in Maine that my mother owns by the shore. There's a cove back in there, and, and many uh, yachts and, and, and boats that are traveling up and down the coast of the United States in the summer will come in there at night because there's a cove back in there that provides a refuge from the winds and the waves and the tide. But when they get back there, if they, don't have, if they don't own a mooring or have a dock, what they'll have to do is they'll have to throw the anchor over. And I told you the story last time about my, one exper- my experience in owning a boat <laughs> and going out in Narragansett Bay and deciding I didn't need to obey the buoys because I was only in the little boat and discovered that the buoys apply to little boats as, big as, the, as, as much as the tankers. And I ran over some rocks and lost our power. And now we're, it, we're, we're at the mercy of the wind and the waves. And so the first thing I did is to pull the anchor out, make sure it was tied to the boat, and then throw the anchor over the side. Now the anchor didn't stop the boat from moving around with the direction of the wind, but it did stop it from moving from that location and blowing up on the rocks or on the shore. And so an anchor is something that holds you in place, especially in a storm, so that the wind and the waves will not pull you off. Now the Bible talks about wind and waves in several places. It talks about it in James chapter 1 when it talks about doubt that someone that doubts God's word, doubts God's promises, is like a boat that's blown around by the wind and the waves and calls that man unstable and says, let that man not think that he will receive anything from God. Amazing scriptures. And so an anchor will keep you from blowing around in the wind and the waves. It also talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4 when it talks about being blown about by the winds of doctrine. And we, if there's anything time we ever needed to be steady and well-grounded, it's with all the junk that's being taught out there as gospel and all the things that are going over the airwaves that are satisfying our itching ears so, so that because you're hearing things you want to hear. So people chasing after this and chasing after this and chasing after this and chasing after this. I'm going to say something that, 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 that 
that may upset some of you, but that's okay. You'll survive because I believe it's what the scripture teaches. There's an order that God establishes for his church. Ephesians 4 lists gifts that God gives to his church. And those are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. God has ordained the local church to be the gathering place for the portion of the body of Christ that you are assigned to. He did not ordain your television set and Christian networks as a gathering place. Now, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that's... But there's a lot of stuff out there that's misleading, that's potentially destructive because they're not accountable. I have to face you every week. And if I say something that leads you astray and casts you up on the rocks, you're not going to pick up your phone and call one of those TV evangelists. You're going to come and ask me about it. But when so, and I'm not saying there aren't good people out there. I'm not saying don't watch. I'm just saying don't use that as your main base of feeding. It says do not forsake your assembling together. Especially as you see the day drawing near. And it's drawing near. Now if I've offended you, call your TV evangelist and ask him what he thinks. No, come talk to me. There's good stuff out there. But they're not accountable to anybody. Except God and they will give an accounting. And then the other problem with it, as long as I'm on it, is you have in your hand the ability to decide to change what you're hearing. I don't like that one, so I'll go to this one. Whereas you're sitting in here, you can tune it off, but you can't change the channel. Because you can go like this at me as much as you want. I'm still going to say the same thing. You can decide to go some other church. That's your choice. But see, when we're... Then we have control. We have control. When, 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 we're, when it's being fed to us that way. Everybody okay now? Yeah. All right? Okay. All right. Okay. Where was I before you interrupted me here? Oh, yeah, the anchor. Thank you. So hope is an anchor for our soul. And that's the first thing that it's important for us to understand. An anchor holds you steady. Notice what it goes on to say. Both sure and steadfast. So this anchor is sure. This is God's endorsement. Hope is an anchor to your soul that's sure and it's steadfast. So you've got to ask yourself, what have you put your hope in? We'll talk more about that later on. Is it sure and is it steadfast? That's what you need to ask yourself. All right. Of, uh, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence 
behind the veil. So the hope that we have has gone before us into the presence of God. I talked about that veil on Sunday. That veil represents a separation from the actual presence of God to where we are. It's whatever separated us from God being able to come into the presence of God. We talked a little bit about it last Wednesday. I spent more time on it on Sunday. Um, and so uh, in the presence of God is everything you're ever going to need. You're not going to be in the presence of God and worried about you know, the election or the economy because in the presence of God, he takes care of everything. So the hope that we have is something that's gone ahead of us into the actual presence of God. And we're, we're, okay, let me go on here. For us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus has gone before us into the presence of God. Now go with me to Hebrews 4. Because Hebrews 4 talks about him as a high priest. Verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That sounds like going through a difficult time. You can find mercy and grace for a time of need because your high priest has gone before you. He's not standing on the outside of the ta tabernacle worshiping God. He's gone through the veil. In fact, his flesh is the veil. He's gone through the veil to represent you and me in the presence of God. And he is there, the Bible says, to intercede for us. Yes. So you may be here on heaven asking God, help, I don't know that I can make it. God, God, hey, please help me. I don't know what I'm going to do. But when you cry out to him, you have a forerunner who's gone before you into the presence of God and he's at the right hand of God and he hears your cries and you say, yeah, but, you, but I'm struggling. I'm failing. I don't know that I can make it. But the Bible says he knows your weaknesses. He understands what it's like to struggle against temptation and weakness and being ready to quit. He understands what that's like. So where God the Father can't understand that, he's never dealt with weakness. He's never dealt with the temptation to quit. But the Son has because he took on flesh like you and me so he's you have a representative standing at the right hand of God pleading your case for him with mercy and with grace to find help in time of need that's the hope you have you have someone that's representing you you have an attorney who's pleading your case you have somebody that's righteous that stands before God day and night knows what you're going through and is pleading your case that's your hope that's your anchor it doesn't depend on you it doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't depend on how faithful you are. It depends on His strength. It depends on His faithfulness. It depends on what He's done. You just have to get your eyes off of you and put your eyes on Him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith.
right. Notice what it's an anchor to. It's an anchor to your soul. It's an anchor to your soul. Why is that so important? Because let's talk about what your soul is. Your soul is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now the enemy comes, what he's after is your will. There are books written, probably the best, most famous one is by Joyce Meyer called The Battlefield of the Mind. And that's right, the battle fields the mind, but the battle's for your will. The mind is where it's fought. Listen to me carefully. The mind is where it's fought. The emotions are what it's fought with. But the goal is your will to get you to quit. And this is why your soul needs an anchor. You notice very rarely are you tempted to quit. (sighs) When you're just sitting back having a great day, you know, feeling good, you know, the dog loves you, your wife loves you, you know, your kids are doing what they're supposed to do, everything's going great at work, you know, and just, you're feeling good. You notice you're never tempted to quit on those days when your emotions are good? It's always when you're overwhelmed. And you feel like you can't. I, see, when I, when, I'm just preparing you. You ever come talk to me? I listen very carefully to your words. Because your words tell me where you are. And I, almost every time when somebody's at that point, this word will be somewhere in their vocabulary. I feel. I feel like I can't make it. That's your emotions that are being blown around by the storms of the wind, the wind of the storm. And hope provides an anchor to your emotions. It provides an anchor to your mind. Because in in order for your emotions to go haywire, your mind has to go first. Let me let you in on this clue. Your emotions are always based on thoughts. Emotions don't float through the air like, you know, radio waves. So that, you know, this one moment you're just, oh, I feel so good. And the wind changes direction. It's, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? No. Somewhere between, oh, I feel so good and the world's coming to an end, you have thoughts. Your emotions are based on your thoughts. 
So if you want to change your emotions, guess what you have to change? Your thoughts. But we look at our emotions as if somehow they're constructed in concrete and iron and they are an accurate, accurate picture of the truth. If that's so, why do they change so often and so quickly? Let me give you a, a hypothetical example. Suppose you and your spouse are having a moment of intense fellowship. And there is passionate emotion involved in expressing your differing views on the subject at hand. And you're both really worked up about it. I mean, the emotions are flowing strong. And you're sharing with each other that peace of mind that you really can't afford to part with. <laughs> and the phone rings. And it's me. Hi. How are you doing? How are things going? Oh, Pastor. I'm doing well. <laughs> what happened to your emotion? You're going to tear her head off five seconds ago. I mean, if that emotion was the truth, it couldn't have changed that fast. Right? I mean, when I went to school, and it was a few years ago, two plus two was four. And I believe, it's, is it still? Well, see, it didn't change just because the wind changed direction or, you know, a different party's in office or whatever. It, it's, the truth is still the truth. The truth doesn't change. So if those emotions are so true, so real, such a real insight into reality, why do they change so quickly? Well, they're not, obviously. So your emotions are based on your thoughts. And I've learned when I'm having emotions to go back and trace my thoughts to see what thoughts gave birth to this emotion. Because if it's not an emotion that I ought to be having or want to have, I need to go back and change the thoughts. And when we learn, learn about how to create hope, we're going to talk about the thoughts we should be thinking and the thoughts that we should not be thinking. So the point here is this, that, that hope is an anchor to the soul, which means it provides stability for your emotions. It doesn't mean you won't have them. Great example of that is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the story of Jehoshaphat one of the good kings of the southern nation of Judah, gets up one morning and discovers that there are three armies separately bearing down on them to destroy them. Now, that's not a particularly nice greeting in the morning. But that's how Satan will sometimes greet us. Not, well, here's one problem. 
But when you take care of that one, there's another one behind them. And while you're working on that one, there's one coming in from this side. And the Bible says when he heard this report, he was afraid. That's an emotion based on a thought. The thought is, we're going to die. <laughs> there's nothing we can do. It's overwhelming. And so the feeling, the emotion that's very likely to follow that is fear. Fear is one of the basic foundation emotions. But it's what he did next. With the emotion going on inside of him, he didn't run with it. He didn't go around and share the emotion and all the thoughts. See, once you let, once you, it's like. <laughs> I learned to drive on a stick shift car. And I like those still better, but you, you know, but, but, but <laughs> the challenge with learning on that is you have to learn how to mesh the gears in. And, and, and um, they developed a thing called synchro mesh, is that what's called? Which, which got the gears spinning along with the engine so that when you went, you didn't go. Well, the car I learned on was an old British car and it didn't have synchro mesh. So you had to rev the engine to about the same speed that, the, that you wanted the gears to be in. And the point is this. I've forgotten what the point was. <laughs> I'm back in that Morris Minor. I can see that car. I like that car. It was good. Meshing gears, that was something like that. What was I talking about before you interrupted me? <laughs> Joe, it's your fault. <laughs> Let's vote on this. What? Oh, fear. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. What would happen is if you, put the, if you revved it up too much and put it in, you got the engine going faster than it's ready to handle. All right, and if, if it's really bad, you'll strip the gears. But you floor it, and the car's going to just take off. And that's what happens sometimes. We get a thought, we get an emotion like fear, and then the way we, what we do is we engage our mouth. I'm not looking at anybody. The engine of our mind's beginning to run, and our minds can run fast. We piece this together with that, together with that, together with that. But while, listen to me, while you're piecing this picture together, it only exists up here. The moment you open this thing and you begin to speak it out, you now engage your heart and your will in what you've been thinking. And you start, you start changing your will to line up with your thoughts. Remember, this is a battlefield, but the battle's after your will. We're talking about why hope is an anchor to the soul, why the soul is so important. We don't hear a lot about the soul in the circles that most of us travel in. You know, we hear about healing of our body. We hear an awful lot about, you know, our spirit man and building our spirit man up. But the Bible says a whole lot about your mind. A whole lot about your mind. Because it controls the, what's going on in your soul. So Jehoshaphat feared. He had that initial emotion 
That's normal. That's fine. But it's what he did with it. He didn't go running around saying, we're going to die. We're going to die. How are we ever going to make it? You know, I don't think... Blah, blah, blah. Just, he didn't engage his mouth in those thoughts. Instead, it says he turned to seek the Lord. He called the, he called the nation together, proclaimed a day of fasting, and they went to seek God, and they actually brought the problem to God to see what he would tell them to do. What a revolutionary thought that is. Imagine if we tried that. Suppose that might work? Well, we'll see why it does. So, it's an anchor to the soul, to the emotions. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. Anger is an emotion based on thoughts. So, it's have the emotion, but it's what you do with it. All right. Now, so it's an anchor to the emotion. Now, let's just look at an example of somebody who, who had to handle some stuff. You know what stuff is? You've had stuff in your life. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter two, chapter 1. Verse 3. See, we have this image that these great men of faith that we are to follow after were just perfect. They either never had any trouble, or if they had trouble, they never wavered or wandered, or they never had any difficulty. But one of the things, and there are many, but one of the things I love about the Bible is it just tells you the way these people really were. See, God deals in truth. I was, I was praying something out, just a, 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 a decision I had to make. And it was one of those decisions that, where there's a lot of emotion tied to it, you know, where, you know, possible guilt if you do some, do something. And, you know, and so I want to do this, but I feel I ought to do this. It's one of the things you're trying to sort through. Or am I the only one who ever does that? Try to sort through what the right thing to do is. And it gets confusing because... I, there's certain things I don't want to do and certain things I think I should do, but I'm not sure if that's God or that's me. If, you know, I'm not, you're not the only one that goes through that. So I found a secret. Don't tell anybody. Just, is this for you folks that came here tonight? This is what I've learned. You just get honest with God. Because I discovered something. He already knows. See, God is a God of truth. And if I'm going to communicate with Him, I have to communicate him with him in truth. Now, I may not know what the truth is in my own heart because the heart can be tricky at times. My mo- our motives can be tricky. But if I'm willing to open my heart up to him for him to show me, then he will show me what the truth is. He'll shine the light in my heart. But if I'm trying to hide certain things from him, then that's an area where he cannot commune with me doesn't mean he doesn't love me, but I'm hiding it from, just like Adam did in the garden after he sinned. All right. Now, so the Bible just opens people's lives up. Aren't you glad you're not in the Bible? I mean, it just opens it up. David's sin is there for all of eternity to see, you know? So is Bathsheba's, you know? Abraham's the father of faith, but there's failures in there that are just wide open. And here's the apostle Paul, the, 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 the spokesman, for, for the doctrine of salvation by faith, 
The clearest teaching on what faith is comes from the Apostle Paul. But let's look at where Paul went through. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Isn't that nice to know? Who comforts us in all our victories, in all our triumphs, so that we may... No, no, that's not what it says, is it? Who comforts us in all our tribulation, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, our, our, our idea is, 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 you know, if God loves me, then I don't go through any stuff. You're going to go through stuff. Most of it you caused. Some of it the enemy just caused, or maybe somebody else caused it, and you're dealing with it, but you're going to go through stuff and say, well, God, why would God allow me to go through stuff? Well, one reason is by going through stuff, you learn compassion for other people that are going through stuff. Because it's easy to say, well, where's their faith? Ha! I'd never do that. Yeah, well, you've got to walk where they walked to find out what you do. Ask, the, ask Peter, Apostle Peter. I'll die with you. I don't know about these other turkeys, but I'll lay my life down for you. In less than a few hours, he found out where he really was. See, Jesus knew where he was. Said he'd already prayed him through it, but Peter needed to find out where he was. And then he said, once you've come through, then you go and comfort the others. God's a whole lot more about us comforting others than judging others. Galatians, it tells us to bear the burden of one another. It also tells us in that same section of Scripture to not judge. Why, why, are, why do we like to judge and not comfort? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? See, when they're struggling in an area, then I feel better about myself. Ah, oh, we better not go there. All right. Verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, or comfort that means, also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Now that word consolation there is an interesting word. It's the word, and some of you may recognize this, parakletos, which is the same Greek word that's translated comforter in the Gospel of John when it's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the comforter. That word literally means in the Greek, someone that's called alongside of you to be of help, aid, assistance, and comfort in whatever it is that you need. If it's strength, it's to provide strength. If it's assurance, 
is to provide assurance. If it's wisdom, it's to provide wisdom. If you go back and look in, I think it's Isaiah 11, you'll see that he is the spirit of, I think it's seven different things, comfort, wisdom, counsel, strength. He's, he's, a, he's an advocate. If you look in the, in the Amplified Version, when, when you look at, uh, in, a, in John's, when John talks about the comforter, it lists a number of things, counselor, comforter, strengthener, standby. It's literally someone that's called alongside of you to meet whatever it is you need. That's what this word consolation means. It's not just, oh, I hope you feel better. It's whatever you need. I am here in it with you to bring you through it. That's a hope. Verse 7. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that you are partakers of the suffering which you also partake and you will also partake of the consolation. Look at this, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. This is in the scriptures. Paul got to the point where he despaired of his own life. Paul. We're talking about emotion. We're talking about something being an anchor to our soul when the storms rage against us and want to blow us all over the place. And Paul, just like that boat with the anchor down and the wind changes direction, well, the boat will swing around the anchor. It's moved by the wind, but it's not changes its location. Paul was blown around by the wind that was coming against him, by the pressure that was coming against him, but it didn't move him off of his course because of the hope that he based his life on. But I want you to see, he wasn't dealing with just a bad day. He despaired of his life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not, this is it, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us, not will, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift that was granted to us through the many. So Paul said, I learned something in this. I learned to not trust in myself. But to trust in the God who raises the... I felt as if I were dead. So I let it all go to Him. And put my trust in a God who can raise the dead. Not just this dead body, a dead soul, a discouraged soul, a soul that wants to quit, a soul that sees no end, a soul that says, I can't handle another challenge. God, that's a dead soul, but God, if you will let go of your efforts, will raise the dead so that your trust comes to be in the God who raises the dead and not your ability to get yourself through it. Because most of us, under pressure, try to draw from our own internal resources. Whether it's our mind or just our stubbornness. (laughs) 
I have on occasion been accused by my wife of having one or two of those traits. And in just our own determination, I'm not going to quit. Yeah, we need that. But you may come to a place where you run out of. You. Just like Peter did. And just like Paul did. Let's go over to chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 7. Now, this is often used to say that Paul had some condition in his body, and therefore God obviously doesn't want to heal us. He tell, I don't want to get off on that, but he tells us here what it was. Lest I should be exalted above measure. I don't want to deal with that tonight. By the abundance of revelation. And if you think that's what was happening, when you come to the point where you've had an abundance of revelation, then you need to worry about this. But, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. How plainer can it get? This thorn in the flesh is the stuff we just read in, chap- in verse chapter 1. It's the pressure. It's the enemy coming against him. To st- every place he went, almost every place he went, they tried to kill him, destroy him, throw him out. The, the church talked bad about him. You know, he was not popular. He spent a number of the places he went in jail for doing what he was called to do. But it never stopped him. In one town, they took him outside and stoned him to death. Now that's a messenger from Satan sent to buffet him, to get him to quit. And whatever's come against you is a messenger of Satan sent to buffet you so you'll quit. And Paul tells us what he learned here. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart me. Oh, by the way, keep your place there. Let's go back to chapter uh, 11 and let's look at what some of this is. Verse 24, well, 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Far more labors are abundant in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths more often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That was scourging. Three times I was beaten with rods. This is his resume. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. That's without a boat. In journeys often. Peril in perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. Sounds like Deuteronomy 28, doesn't it? Perils in the sea. Perils among false brethren. In weariness. In toil. In sleeplessness often. In hunger and thirst. and fastings often. In cold. In nakedness. Besides all these things which come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the church. Who is not weak that I'm not weak? Who is not made to stumble that I don't burn with indignation? So that's what he's talking about when he talks about the messenger of Satan that's come to buffet him. Look at verse 8, chapter 12 now, verse 8. 
Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Have you ever pleaded that it would depart from you? Concerning this, I, in verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Let me tell you how we misread this. We misread this by thinking, my grace is insufficient for you. See, we don't understand what grace is. People literally, theologians read that as if God said no. Sit in it. Stew in it. No, God said, you don't need me to stop the messenger of Satan. My grace is sufficient to bring you through it. And from this, notice, he didn't get it the first time. He didn't get it the second time. And Paul wasn't dense or stupid. Three times he tried this. And notice something about God? He gave the same answer three times. My grace is sufficient for you. And here's the message again. For my strength, God's talking here. My strength is made perfect or complete in your weakness. Paul says, I finally got it. Therefore, most gladly will I boast in my infirmities. That word does not mean sickness and disease. If you look that word up, it means an inability to produce results yourself. Which is what Paul was trying to do. In the midst of all this pressure, Paul was trying to overcome it himself, overcome it in his own resources, overcome it with his own plans, overcome it with his own determination, and he ran out and cried out to God finally. And God says, my grace, remember when John Bavier was here and talked about what grace is? My grace. My grace, which is my ability to work through your weakness, my grace is made complete in your weakness. And Paul says, I got it. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches in needs, in persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Romans chapter 5. Verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds good through whom we have access through faith into this grace, that's what we're talking about, in which we stand, and rejoice in the, and rejoice in the, and that's what we're talking about, isn't it? In the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Whoa, wait a minute. How many of you have that on your refrigerator verse? But Paul had learned something. We glory in tribulation. Why? Knowing something. Knowing that tribulation produces something. What does it produce? Perseverance or 
steadfastness. What are we saying hope does? Hope is an anchor to the soul so that no matter what comes against your mind, no matter what stirs up your emotions, whether you have the emotions or not, it will not move you off of your course that God has set you on. And that's defined as perseverance. Whatever came against the Apostle Paul, he finished his course with joy. He didn't get to the end of his course and say, oh, am I glad that's over because I barely made it through. He finished it with joy. In fact, the more pressure, the stronger he got because he learned how to trust not in his strength, but to get out of the way of his strength. That's why he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, though the outward man is perishing, this inward man is being renewed, getting stronger day by day. He did not come to the end of his course gasping for air, having finally just barely made it across the finish line. He broke the tape, running at full tilt with the devil chasing him. And this is what he unlearned. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or steadfastness. Look at verse 4. And perseverance, the New King James says, or the, the New American Standard says, proven character. What you're going through is proving, developing your character. And character produces what? Hope. And the next verse says, hope does not disappoint. We'll close with this last scripture. Psalm 42. Hope, the first thing we're learning about hope, why it's so important, it's an anchor to your soul to your mind, to your will, and to your emotions, to keep your will on course, on track. David went through some stuff too. Psalm 42, verse 5. David just was real and opened up. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Here's the answer. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of my countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mazar. Let's go over to verse 11. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Why is hope so vital? Because we are going through challenges and tribulations. And the enemy is after your will to get it to move away from the course that God has set you on, from the will of God for your life. He can't just come in and move your will any more than God can come in and move your will. So what he's got to work on 
is your emotions so that we'll react to our emotions and give our will over to our emotions, in which case he's got us. And God's answer to keep your emotions steady and to keep your mind steady is to give you hope as an anchor for your soul. And that hope isn't something just sitting here in you. It's in Jesus Christ who's gone before you into the presence of God and is interceding for you in whatever you're going in that you might make it. And that hope is the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit who is in you, called alongside of you to be whatever you need Him to be. He is the grace of God in you to be in you whatever you particularly need in the midst of what you're going through so that you may finish your course. The hope is a gift of God and therefore it is steadfast and it is sure. Next time we'll look at another purpose of hope that may explain to you why some of your prayers haven't been answered yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you love us so much that you have given us an anchor, something that's solid and steadfast, that whatever happens in our life, whatever things look like, we don't have to be moved. We thank you, Lord, tonight that we see that in your word, that whether we feel you're with us or not, your word promises us that you are in the middle of whatever we're going through and that you have for us a hope that we will come through this and we will overcome. That our hope is in you. It's not in what we hear. It's not in the doctor's report or the stock market report or the, or the election results or my bank account or what my family says or does. Our hope is in you. Father, continue by your spirit to open the eyes of our understanding, to see this blessed assurance and hope that you've given us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray.